starfish. I like giving you some food, too. You are my friend. You are special. You are my friend. You are special to me. You are the only one like you. Like you, my friend. I like you in the daytime, in the nighttime, any time that you feels the right time for a friendship with me, you see. Can you spell friend? F-R-I-E-N-D, special. You are my friend. You're special to me. There's only one. In this wonderful world, you are special. It's not so much what we have in this life that matters. It's what we do with what we have. The alphabet is fine, but it's what we do with it that matters most. Making words like friend and love. That's what really matters. So Mr. Rogers wants to remind you that you are special. Don't you feel better already? Turn to somebody around you and say, you are special. You are special. Because Mr. Rogers said so. Hey, welcome to week two of this series. If you would grab your message notes right inside of your bulletin, you can take those out and do some fill in the blanks and follow along. You know, but Mr. Rogers did say something very impactful there at the end, believe it or not. But he said, it's not what you have, it's what you do with what you have. It's what you do with what you have. And the question is, do we really believe that everybody really is special? And what are we to do about that? Because how you answer that question will determine where your heart is at when it comes to loving your neighbor as yourself. And so last week, we talked about how neighboring, it's not about the proximity of our homes to one another, even though some of you might have some great neighbors, but rather it's the proximity of your life to somebody else. And that Jesus is calling us to love one another as he loved us. And again, we said last week, Jesus raises the bar so high on this deal, and he says, I want you to love one another as I have sacrificially loved you. And so if you missed last week, I really want to encourage you to jump online. Just go to riverwaychurch.com, and you can watch the service back from last week and uh, catch up with us. But this phrase, one another, uh, shows up, we said last week, more than a hundred times in the New Testament. And so this whole one anothering thing was a big deal to Jesus. And why was it such a big deal to Jesus? Uh, Because he knew that this is the thing. This is the one thing that would ultimately define you and I as followers of Jesus, the way we love one another. And we examined 1 Corinthians 13 last week when the Apostle Paul said some very offensive things, especially if you are a Jesus follower. Uh, He said things like, your faith is worthless without love. It doesn't matter how many spiritual hoops you jump through. It doesn't matter how many boxes you check and you do all the right things. If we don't know how to love one another, it's all for nothing. Uh, We cannot have a vertical relationship with God while ignoring the horizontal relationships around us. And that our relation, our religious efforts, our relationship with God and all the things that we do in that is great as long as we are putting motion to our devotion. Remember we talked about that last week, putting motion to our devotion. And so today I want to talk about strangers. Well, what about them? 
what's our responsibility? Because I think even that word stranger, doesn't that kind of creep you out a little bit, right? I mean, we were indoctrinated from a very young age uh, to be aware of stranger danger. Does anybody remember stranger danger, right? And your parents would say, listen, you need to run like a bat out of hell if you see a van like this. Uh, that's it right there, right? <clears throat> Just run. Kids, if they say puppies or free candy, just run. Uh, we're aware of stranger danger, and I think we might even all agree that for those that we do life with, that yes, we should love one another and care for one another, but what about the person we don't even know? What about the person that isn't even in our circle, so to speak? The stranger that doesn't look like you, the stranger that doesn't smell like you, that doesn't have their life together like you, Maybe they have different values, different sexual orientation, different political views. The stranger that maybe sins differently than you or has morals very differently than you. I mean, surely God is not requiring of us to love those kinds of people, right? And the answer is no. You do not have to love and care for any strangers. I can feel the tension in the room as long as you are not a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, you are off the hook. You can take this in, you can relax, you can think about it, chill on it, whatever you want to do. But if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, he is commanding us to do something and asking us to pay attention to this idea of loving our stranger. Now, <clears throat> maybe you've heard this term, Good Samaritan, before. Uh, you know, it's the person that walks the old lady across the street, you know, somebody that pays a bill for somebody that can't afford it, somebody that stops to change a tire uh, when they're broken down on the side of the road. We look at those types of people in our society would say, man, what a good Samaritan. And maybe you don't know that that's actually a biblical phrase. And it comes out of this powerful lesson that Jesus was trying to teach people about loving and caring for the stranger around us. And I love this passage and the story that Jesus is about to tell because the first century audience the people that are listening to this are kind of going along with it being like oh yeah yeah that's great and by the end of the story Jesus says something so shocking to them that it absolutely blindsides them a plot twist so big that it blows them away and like a dagger this principle gets right into their heart and we pick up this story in Luke chapter 10 verse 25 and it says this, that on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, oh, that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, if you claim to be the son of God, when I die and I want to go to heaven, Jesus, how do I inherit that kind of everlasting life? Now, this guy that, Jesus, that is asking this question to Jesus already knows the answer to this. He is an expert in Old Testament law. But what he's trying to do is see if he can ask this question in such a way that Jesus will stumble and he'll stammer and suddenly everybody can be like, ha, gotcha, you're not the son of God and we knew it. But yet Jesus, in his masterful way, turns the table on this unexpecting lawyer to teach him a valuable lesson. And so Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? I love, man, many times, I mean, Jesus rarely actually answers a question. He usually asks a question to answer a question. 
He says, what is written? What do you read it? And the man says to him, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Conversation over, boom, we're good, aren't we? Not so fast. Because this lawyer who's an expert in the law understands that it's all about loving God and loving people. And yet, boy, he's uncomfortable with this whole love your neighbor thing. And it goes on to say, but he wanted to, what's that word? What's that word? Justify. He wanted, now listen, this is so important. He wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, then who is my neighbor? If you want me to love my neighbor as myself, then you're gonna have to better define this for me. In other words, Jesus, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to find my escape clause. I wanna know how far I can get to the line of like loving and not loving my neighbor to like just on the edge so I can still inherit eternal life but don't really wanna inconvenience my life, if that makes sense. I don't want to overdo it here with this whole love your neighbor thing. Jesus, come on, this seems way too vague. If you could just pinpoint what I need to do, set up some really simple spiritual check boxes for me, it would just make my life a whole lot simpler. Would you do that for me? And if we are honest, I think we can all place ourselves right at this point in the story. Asking Jesus the same question because oftentimes we have the same motives. We try and justify why we don't need to spend the time, the energy, or resources on somebody else, and usually it's because we tell ourselves that they are a stranger. Come on, we've all done this. We have all seen the homeless man with the sign standing on the roadside, and there's something inside of us that makes us want to lean in with compassion, but we stop ourselves and we say, Come on, I'm guilty of this. I've done it a hundred times. They're a stranger. There could be danger. I don't know who they are. It's somebody else's problem. They're not in my circle. They shouldn't have gotten themselves into that mess to begin with. I'm sure somebody else coming up behind me will help them. I'm on a tight schedule here. They might be a mass murderer. They might be a Packer fan. They could be a Bears fan. They could be, they could be dangerous people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> just saw the Green Bay Packers shirt. That's great. I just love that. <laughs> Come on, we've all been there. The moment that our conscience has been dinged to lean in with compassion, you know, you feel whatever the situation is. When you see someone at work, uh, someone who's a friend of a friend and something just strikes you. And it's like even in those moments when c compassion strikes our conscience, we justify away our responsibility because, listen, we are still learning what it really means to love someone else the same way we love ourselves. Because truth be told, we do very good at loving ourselves. We spend lots of time and lots of resources on ourselves. And it seems to be a great divide between loving someone else that same way. And so Jesus wants to make this question to this lawyer who is trying to justify his way, his responsibility. Jesus is wanting to make this very, very clear to him and to us. 
And so he tells a story. Not a true story, but a story to answer the question, then who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. I mean, this is not a good day for this Jewish man. Imagine that happening on your busy street. Imagine driving by, walking the dog, and all of a sudden you see somebody laying on the ground, half naked, bloodied, beaten, gasping for air, maybe reaching out for help. This is the scene that Jesus has now set. And he continues the story. He said, a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. And when he saw the man, something happens in that word saw, and, and, and you know what this thing is. Because when we see things that we don't like, or we're bothered by, our conscience is bothered by, our compassion causes us to lean in, when we see something, suddenly mental gymnastics begin, don't they? And you have to decide what you are going to do with what you've just seen. And here is this priest who has seen this bloody, beaten man, and now he must decide what he's going to do with what he just saw. And Jesus said he walked on the other side of the road and kept going. And I love that Jesus uses the pastor as the guilty one here, right? I mean, if anyone should have compassion, it should be the priest. If anyone should have compassion, it should be the pastor. I mean, he's really trying to make a point here. And Jesus is saying, everybody's guilty of this. I mean, if the pastor and the priest is guilty of this, everybody's guilty of this. And he continues, so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, suddenly deciding about what he had to do with what he's just seen, passed by on the other side. Now this Levite, he was a man that he knew better. He knew the law. He understood the love your neighbor as yourself thing. But he didn't help. Maybe he was in a hurry. Maybe he thought to himself as he was walking on that road, somebody behind me, the next person that comes, they will be the one to stop. I've got my 430 caribou and I've got to get there. And then Jesus continues. And this is the moment in the story that the whole crowd gasps. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, when the mental gymnastics started and he thought, what should I do with what I've just seen? Jesus said he had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. Now, to you and I listening to this story today, I didn't hear one audible gasp in this room. As I read that line, not one of you went, oh! You know why? Because you didn't live in the first century. And if you were a group of Jewish people, you would understand how much you hated the Samaritans. You hated them. And why did you hate them? Why did they despise one another? 
Because Samaritans were known as half-breeds. Half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdoms, they intermarried with them, the people there, and they settled with them in Samaria. And there was tons of hatred, there was tons of infighting going on over morals and religious ideals and values. And so they were an enemy of the Jews. So much so that they, if you were a Jew, you wouldn't even walk into the land of Samaria. And even if this meant for you a much longer journey, you would walk all the way around so that you didn't even have to step foot into those half-breeded sons of guns, right? So when Jesus said, it was a Samaritan who stopped. They gasped thought to themselves, there's no way that Jesus is about to make the Samaritan a hero. And if he does, so help me. And Jesus goes on to explain what this Samaritan did. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after them. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I mean, you talk about murmuring in the crowd. Because this is a fake story and Jesus has on purpose used a Samaritan as the hero in the story. So for the people hearing this and this lawyer who wanted to know who his neighbor was, in this story, this man wasn't just a stranger. He was a hated stranger. Jesus just upped the ante for everybody listening. And this Samaritan did for that Jew what even his fellow Jews would not do. This Samaritan didn't care about the things that culture said should divide them. Instead, he showed care to a stranger anyway. And then Jesus finishes this story by asking the million-dollar question. He says, which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, then go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. In other words, Jesus was saying, I want you to repeat this story that every time you see a need and your heart begins to be moved with compassion, that you're going to decide in that moment what you're going to do with what you've just saw. And Jesus says, if you want me to help define for you what it means to love your neighbor, I want you to love the stranger among you even if you hate them. I want you to lean into their world. You see, Jesus is trying to get across that the who doesn't matter as much as the neighboring that is going on. Jesus says the who will come intuitively to you as you bump into people, as you bump into situations, but the process of neighboring is what I want you to pay attention to even with strangers. To see a need, to meet a need. And so, your very first fill-in. If you are a follower of Jesus... We are called to live in a world without strangers. 
We are called to live in a world without strangers. Uh, Richard Beck, he's a professor at Abilene Christian University. I came across a video clip and he was talking about this very idea. And I thought it was so good and so impactful that I wanted to share it with you this morning. So why don't you watch this real quick? Let let me say this a different way. I like to talk about something um, called the moral circle. And the moral circle is is an idea come up by the ethicist Peter Singer. Peter Singer says, the the moral psychology of humans is simple. It's a simple two-step process. Number one, extend uh, determine who is, who is kind, who is your kin. Like, who are your peeps? Who are your people? Psychologists have actually tried to ballpark this number. Current estimates are around 500. Like, most people have a, my people is usually plus or minus. Some of you are really extroverted. Tim's very, you know, maybe, maybe 150, you know, more people. But most of us are about 100, 500 people we consider my family. That's your moral circle. And then, once you identify your kin, you extend kindness to them. Everybody outside is what's called on the outside of your moral circle. And we treat those people as means to an end. We use people as instruments for our purposes in the world. They are strangers. So I, to illustrate this, I tell my students, I say, imagine one of your best friends. Has anybody ever worked in the food and beverage industry? Anybody ever waited tables, been in that slave shop? Um, I used to do that to get to grad school, waited tables. And so imagine one of your friends says, hey, I've been training. This is my first night on the floor. Why don't you all come to the restaurant? I'll wait on your table. We'll have a great time. And so all your friends get together. You ask for their section. You sit in their section, and they come, and you're going to say, yay, you know, first night. But they come, and they're sweating bullets. It's, the night is going awful. If you've ever worked in food and beverage, you know what night's like this. And I say to my students, what do you tell your friend in that moment? What do you, what do you say? Don't worry about it. Hey, hey, we're good. You take care of us last. You take everybody else. And if the Sermon on the Mount is to be believed, that is no great moral demonstration on your part. Even the pagans do that. You know what I mean? Even the pagans extend kindness to their brothers and sisters, their people, right? That is, that is no virtue that you go, don't worry about it. That's what you do. It's like breathing. You extend kindness to your friends. What, what else would you do, okay? Because Why? Your friend is in your moral circle, and they're entitled to a certain kind of class of behavior because of that. I said, now imagine you and your friends go out tonight. Imagine you go out this evening, and you're sitting in a restaurant, and you're vaguely aware that the waitress is a little stressed out, and the, the refills are slow. The food is slow. They're not as attentive as you want. It takes a little longer to get your check, so you stop making eye contact. You remember, you, how many of you have done that? You stop making eye contact. Your comments become a little bit more clipped and the tip becomes smaller and smaller and even non-existent. Two people, right? One is your friend. One is a stranger. And they're entitled to two different classes of behavior because one of them is not in your moral circle. But what I say to my students and what I say to myself every time I eat out, every time I stand in front of a cashier at a Walmart or whether I'm caught in Georgia traffic. (laughs) I say, this woman is not my mother. She's not my sister. She's not my wife. She's not my daughter. But she is somebody's mother. She's somebody's daughter. She's somebody's friend. Somebody cares about her. Just not me. She's a stranger. She's a stranger. 
So how do we expand this moral circle that he's talking about? Because I think all of us would agree that that hits home for us. Those on the inside get treated differently than those on the outside. Well, this is how it begins, and it's your next feeling, that loving our neighbor involves a changing of our mindset to see with eyes of compassion. It's a changing of our mindset to see with eyes of compassion. It's allowing yourself to be aware of the needs around you and stepping into them like this good Samaritan did. It's asking the Holy Spirit to give you eyes of compassion to those in need. And then as you see a need and you're processing what to do about that need, you do it. And you step in and you meet a need. But here's the pushback that we hear from many well-intentioned Christians. And if you've been raised in the church, you grew up in the church, the longer you've been in the church, the more this is something fighting internally for you. Because here's pushback that I hear. Well, how can I love someone who lives in a way that I oppose? Or what the Bible would call sin? I mean, won't it look like I'm approving of their choices if I lean in to help them? Won't it look like I'm approving of their lifestyle? Won't it look like I'm approving, or I'm sorry, won't it look like I'm lowering my standards? And inside of these questions is a very, very real tension that the longer you've been in church, the deeper this tension is. And anytime you're faced with that kind of tension, the very best thing that you can do is say, what did Jesus do? How would have Jesus responded? And as you read the New Testament, over and over and over throughout the New Testament, what you see is that Jesus was hammered by religious people for hanging out with sinners. Jesus was battered again and again for hanging out with people with lifestyles far different than his own. What would Jesus do? You see, loving someone with care and service does not mean that you agree with how they live their life. Nowhere in this story does this good Samaritan do a moral check on this person to see if first he's good enough in order for him to help him. Nowhere is God asking us to take a moral stand at the cost of loving someone. And so, stepping into that tension, your next fill-in, objecting to someone's lifestyle does not excuse the Christian from loving or serving them. Objecting to someone's lifestyle, their choices, their sin, does not excuse the Christian from loving or serving them. And we have to get over that excuse and remove that kind of thinking from our heart because it is anti-Jesus. And Christians have been hiding behind that excuse for far too long. And if you were raised in a, in a church like this, you were taught that somehow loving someone and caring for them equated to approving of their choices they were making. And, and Christians would hide behind this and we'd say to ourselves, if I love and care for that person, what will my other Christian friends think of me? Come on, this is true. If I move into that person's circle and begin to care for them, what will people think of me? What would my church think of me? What would my Christian friends think of me? 
And the only answer that I know to give you is I don't know and I don't care. Really don't. The question we should be asking is what will this person think when I remove all the barriers to love and care for them right where they're at? You see the difference there? Instead of asking, how is this going to negatively look on me? God help us. Because this was never his intent. This is not how Jesus led by example. He moved into people's lives that needed him the most and loved and cared for them right where they're at. And as a result of that, their hearts became open to his message. And so if that was you, and that was how you were raised, it's a mindset that you will have to fight until it disappears. Instead, ask yourself, what will this person think? How will this person respond? How will this person feel if I move into their world and care for them? Because here's another million-dollar question. And don't miss this. How can we love God and not love those God died for? How can we? You know, the example is that if you're mean to one of my kids and you're a jerk to them or you intentionally hurt them and then you come up to me and you say, hey, but we're still cool, right? I mean, I know I was mean to your kid. I know I was rude to your kid. I know I intentionally hurt your kid, but like that, that's your kid. I mean, me and you, we're still good, right? And the answer would be what? No, we're not good. You mess with my kids, you mess with me. If you mess with my kids, you mess with my wife. You get mama bear. Nobody wants mama bear. How is it any different? How do we think that we can mistreat those God loves? How can we say we love God and mistreat his kids? Works the exact same way. Your next fill-in, that we cannot say we love God and not show love to those God loves. We cannot say we love God and not show love to those God loves. And this is getting back to what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. I don't care how impressive your spiritual resume is. I don't care how many spiritual boxes you can check and how many hoops you can jump through. If you don't know how to love people, it's all for nothing. What incredible waste. We cannot say we love God and not show love to those God loves. And so let me ask you in light of this a very honest question that may cause some internal tension for you. What is it? What, what is that part in your heart and in my heart that pushes people out of our circle? What is it? What's that hitch in our heart and when we see somebody and they don't look like us, they don't talk like us, they don't have their life put together like us, that we move them out and we don't care for them because they're a stranger. I think if we were honest, we might agree that it's because of biases in our heart. And it doesn't matter how those biases got there. It just matters that they're there. And God is asking us to deal with those things. Why? Because your next fill in, because bias 
towards others robs us of compassion for them. Bias towards others robs us of compassion for them. Judgment towards others robs us of compassion for them. And God is commanding us to let go of those things, to open wide our arms to those around of us, to stop the mental sorting that we do so intuitively and just start loving people. And that every time you feel compassion rise up in your heart, every time it nicks you to do something about it. Your very last feeling, you see, we will lose our bias and selfishness when we put action to our compassion. When we put action to our compassion. And this is exactly what Jesus is asking us to do. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, uh, we lived in northeast Minneapolis for a couple of years. And on Saturdays, me and my older brother, we would just like to explore. And part of our exploring, we found that just a couple blocks away, uh, there was train tracks, and all the bridges went over these train tracks. And so one day, me and my brother decided that we were going to climb over this large fence and scale down about a probably 15 or 20-foot stone wall that had some pretty easy stones you could grab onto. And we got down to the actual level where the train tracks were. And we walked forward to the bridge area, the covered bridge area, and underneath that, there was about four or five homeless guys hanging out. And they were sitting around a fire, and here I am, 12 or 13 years old, being like, hey, what's up? I'm Ryan. (laughs) And we realized that they were hungry. Our conscience was bothered, and so me and my brother, we went home, and we made them all sandwiches, and we brought them back to them under the bridge. And for about the next five or six weeks, we did this every Saturday. We'd make sandwiches. We wouldn't tell our parents, obviously. And we'd go down there. And we would feed these homeless guys hanging on the bridge. And the very last week that we were there, I'll never forget this as long as I live. We're sitting there, and I mean, these guys, I mean, every single week, (laughs) they were very inebriated, all right? They were, I mean, just pretty wasted. And one of the guys who was in a boot and on a crutch saw us with the food, and he was so excited, he got up and started walking towards us. But because he was drunk, he fell over into the fire. And he is laying in the fire. And I'm like, "Ah!" I didn't know what to do. And I'm thinking his buddies will jump up, obviously, and rescue him out of the fire. But they were so drunk, they couldn't do anything. And they were like, Fred, get out of the fire. Fred, get out of the fire, man. And so he just rolled out of the fire and just eventually put himself out. And we're just like, I mean, I've never seen anything like this. And just at that moment, these like two squad cars come rolling up on on us. And these police officers get out, and obviously they look at us, they look at them, they see how young we are. We try to explain that we're trying to help them. And they're like, no, you need to go home. You need to never come back here again. Do you understand? Yes, we understand. And so, you know, they told the homeless people they had to leave. They couldn't live under the bridge and blah, 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 blah. And so, I mean, that was so impactful uh, to my brother and I that the very next Saturday we went back. And so we climbed over the fence and went down the wall and, and we walked under that bridge and they were gone. They were never there again. Now, I'm not advocating for you to send your teenager under bridges to help with homeless people. <laughs> what I am advocating for is to pay attention when compassion hits your heart. And if we were honest, for many of us, this happened a lot more frequently the younger we were. Do you know what I'm talking about? And the older we have gotten, we have become more self-centered, we've become more selfish, 
It's been my time, my resources all spent on me. And Jesus is saying to the lawyer and he's saying to us, if you want to understand what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, then you've got to be like the Samaritan that was willing to step into the life of a stranger. And I see a need and compassion has moved my heart and so now I'm going to put action in my compassion. I'm not going to be like that lawyer was that said I'm going to figure out how I can justify my way out of this. I'm going to give myself enough excuses as to where I don't feel bad about this anymore. But Jesus is saying, come on. Lean in. When your heart is moved with compassion, do something about it. And that's why Jesus said to us in Luke 6, 31, and we get ready to close, he said, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And the longer you've been in church, you've probably heard that verse a thousand times. And in fact, you've heard that verse so many times that you've learned how to tune it out. You've learned how to say, well, that's a very nice verse and someone else will pay attention to it. But imagine yourself in a place beaten down by life, needing care, needing someone to step into your world. And if you were that person, would you not want the person walking by that claims to love God to do something about it? Because I think for many of us, it holds us back because we say to ourselves, well, I can't solve all the needs, so I'm gonna do nothing. I can't help everyone, and so I will help no one. And this is part of the reason that we've done Miracle Sunday. I wish we could help every family in need. I wish we could help every single family in need, and the reality is we can. And so what we've encouraged you to do and, and what we've tried to do is to say, listen, we will do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. We will step into the need. We will step into that void. We will step into that crisis. And with compassion, put action into this claim that we love God. Do unto others as you would want them to do for you. So would you mind praying with me as we get ready to close today? And I just want us to take 30 seconds in this moment for you to talk to God and for God to talk to you. And maybe in this moment you would recognize that there have been times that you've had compassion hit your heart, but maybe like that lawyer, you've gotten good at justifying it away. And if that's you today, you could ask God for help to lean in in a whole new way. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never received the compassion of God into your life. You've never received his forgiveness of sin to have a brand new start to know what it feels like to have a plan and purpose for your life. And maybe today you'd want to receive that, and you can do that in these 30 seconds by just talking and praying to God and asking Him to forgive your sin, to acknowledging Him as the Son of God who died and rose for you, and to ask Him to be the leader of your life from this point forward. Because if you do that, He will show up in your world in a big way. And so wherever you're at with God, Let's just take 30 seconds to do that right now.
Heavenly Father, I ask for every person that prayed in this moment to make you the leader of their life and to have their sin forgiven. Would you allow them to experience your grace and your love in an overwhelming way? To know what it feels like to be loved unconditionally and to be given a new hope and to be given a new future. God, for those of us that prayed and asked for your help on this deal of loving our neighbor as ourselves, even our strangers around us, we first ask that you'd forgive us because we know there's been many times that you have dinged our conscience and we have justified it away. And I'm asking that you'd help us to be the church that you've called us to be, to love people with no abandon. Got to step into their worlds to feel a need, to see a need and put action to our compassion. That by this, the world would know that we are followers of you and it would cause their hearts to turn toward you. So tomorrow as we start our work week, Teach us how to slow down and see with new eyes and a new mindset. To step into the voids and the crises around us to make a difference as best we can. In Jesus' name.